What's up, everybody? Welcome to Relinda Speaks. I wanted to give a quick shout out to all of the Relinda Speaks patrons on Patreon that are supporting the podcast. So I just want to really quickly shout them out. Terry, Ruthie, Tom, Fahi, Allison, Liz, Shannon, Jenny. Thank you for being patrons on Patreon. And for all of you out there, you can join in too. Just go to patreon.com backslash Relinda, find Relinda Speaks, and we'll be happy and honored to have you as patrons. If you enjoy the podcast, you find it informative, funny, relatable, or just, you know, want to support independent podcasters, be sure to find Relinda Speaks on Patreon and, you know, support the work, shout it out, become a patron. And thank you again to those who have already subscribed as patrons. I appreciate you. So excited today. Welcome to Relinda Speaks podcast. How are you, Nyla? I'm fantastic. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Of course, of course. Well, let's just jump right in. I feel like there's so much for us to talk about um, with everything that's going on. So my first question is, is that, you know, you're in corporate America. You're a black woman that's in a senior leadership position. Um in an all-white environment. And so my first question is, is how are you doing um, with everything that's going on? What has your experience, you know, been like? And, and how are you, you holding up? Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm a communication strategist. And I'm overseeing teams and campaigns for one of the world's biggest brands right now. But I'm also a professional coach and a Reiki healer. And... So I spend most of my time working with people to uncover and discover stories, you know, stories that are going to be empowering. And I really try to focus on inspiring hope and encouraging people just to explore and like imagine the possibilities. That's really how I approach work. And I have to use a lot of imagination being the only black person in the room most of the time. And I have to say that it is definitely been a roller coaster ride every day a different roller coaster ride every day i won't lie we're fighting two pandemics right now you know i'm balancing a lot i'm like a mom a wife a daughter a friend an executive entrepreneur homeschool teacher activist it's a lot you know especially in this moment and i experience a range of emotions i guess every day and in corporate America, it is honestly, it's frightening right now because in America, we are really run by corporations and they hold a lot of the money. They hold a lot of the sway with how things go and people subscribe and identify themselves with these brands. And these brands have a moment right now to stand up for what's right. And we're seeing brands all over the world come out and some people are doing it right. Some people are tripping and falling, and some people are silent. It's a difficult place to be, honestly. At work, being the, one of the only black people, you're shouldering a lot of this inherent responsibility to make sure that the company gets it right because you're there. But you can't represent a whole 
community of people, you are one person. So there's a lot of complex feelings that you have to balance in this particular moment with this situation. Definitely. And I think, you know, I can hear it in your voice, you know, like what you're carrying. And I uh, identify with it so much. And I think that, you know, for every, uh, you know, black person that is, you know, in spaces, um, which is for many of us, that's our reality and has been our reality, right, in our professional careers, um, where we have been, you know, the only or one of, you know, a few that you can count on one hand. In this particular moment, you know, when you speak to, you know, having to carry, you know, this as companies are trying to figure out what to do, um, if they should make a statement or not make a statement, all of that is then being directed to that one black person, right? Um, to say, like, help us figure this out. I got to say, like, I've been trying to watch what I eat, but I really want to go out and buy some Ben and Jerry's right now. Yes. <laughs> their statement. <laughs> is like I just wish that we could clone them and their philosophy and their mentality and like program that throughout corporate America because I haven't seen anybody else step up like that. Absolutely. I mean, not only did they boldly say dismantling white supremacy, so an action item, like, that's it. That's the goal. And then, you know, continuing with, you know, giving history lessons about, you know, Jim Crow and redlining and using their social media to tell those stories, right, to give that historical context. And then going a step further and saying, here are the reasons for reparations and here's why, you know, because that's that's an ongoing conversation. And so I, I love that the platform there, they're not just, you know, putting up this, you know, an empty statement, but rather there's action. And also the fact that Ben and Jerry's didn't just jump on this bandwagon. They actually are, you know, have been talking about these issues for quite some time. And also I think that that's really important of, of seeing that longevity and that consistency of messaging. Because watch these companies, you know, before we know it are, are going to flip-flop you know I'm, I'm thinking about Starbucks right now right Me where, too. <laughs> where Starbucks you know said to their employees that they can't wear you know Black Lives Matter shirts and you know but they've allowed LGBTQ you know pins and shirts as they should you know to celebrate Pride Month or to celebrate you know um, the importance of the LGBTQ community rightfully so and so you've allowed that but why in this case did you say that you couldn't and then you know 24 hours later flip-flop and say we're making a shirt and and I have a problem with that because that's that's policing like you want to create the shirt that people can wear I I'm I'm I'm, no like why do you why do you want to control um being able to say I support Black Lives Matter. I, I and so Starbucks is a repeat offender, and I think like we all have the receipts. This is this is a hot mess for them, and I mean we'll see, we'll see what the people say, but this is not allyship at all. Absolutely, thank goodness I have a local coffee coffee shop that I can uh, support because uh, you know going back to what you were talking about with you know corporate America and, and their control over so many things and in this capitalistic society, you know I feel like they'll try and sell anything. 
And right now, I think selling racial justice is a hot commodity. And so we have a lot of power in consumerism and what we choose to buy, who who we choose to support. And so I just would challenge everyone to really keep an eye out for your faves and see if this is something that is going to be consistent. And is the message one that gives actionable items and steps of what to do or what they're doing? And are they keeping you abreast of what they're doing as a company? Or was this just an empty statement that jumped on the bandwagon? Because if you didn't say something that looked disingenuous or you thought it was going to hurt your bottom line. And so I just want people to just, you know, in in our levels of wokeness... um, (laughs) Let, let's keep our eye, you know, on the ball. <laughs> let's switch gears a little bit um, and think about, um, you know, something that I saw, you know, on the, the that was floating around on the Internet. Right. And it was something that was said, you know, when um, George Floyd, when he called out for his mother. Right. You know, where we saw, you know, his his life expire and he called out for his mother. Um, there was something going around the Internet that said that was a call to mothers everywhere. Right. And um, and then there was this other um uh, sentiment or, or sign, uh, or maybe it was a protest sign. Um, and it said, you know, when you have a black son, you pray differently. And so I just wanted to ask you, like, in thinking about, you know, those two things, you're a mother, you're the mother of a black son, like, how was seeing those things that those two things resonate with you? And, you know, let's talk a little bit about this idea of when you have a black son, you pray differently. Seeing that video, of George Floyd being murdered right in front of our eyes was probably one of the most traumatic things that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. And watching him call out to his mother who had already passed on was honestly just so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of the importance of being a parent. And the responsibility of being a parent and the weight that black parents have to carry. It enrages me, honestly, that non-black people and especially white people are not carrying nearly the weight or nearly the responsibility. I recently spoke with a white mother and I asked her what she was doing in terms of being anti-racist and her answer in a nutshell was that she was going to teach her kids to love everyone and the kids don't see color and that sat with me in such a way that I really want to just hang up it's just so easy for for her to think that that's the right the right way to do it Mm -hmm. and my reality is so different I have to be proactive and you know what she does too because there's a conditioning that happens really early on, the media, your preschool teachers, the whole place is socialized against black people and black lives. It's socialized in a way that we're inferior. There's, you know, like the black sheep. (laughs) There's all kinds of idioms that instill that black people are inferior. And if you do not actively teach your children to celebrate differences and embrace cultures and you actively put them in an environment where they can learn and acknowledge these things and you're a part of the problem 
when you have a black son, you pray differently because you know that you have to have conversations with them that you don't want to be having because the world isn't right and you're robbing them of their innocence. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i there with you. And I, um, yes, white parents. Um, I wrote an article, um, you know, the talk and how white parents need to have that talk. And I think to echo your sentiment about responsibility and how, you know, we know um, that we have that responsibility, right? Of just like, okay, we have to have this conversation and then to teach us a survival skill, you know, and, and how how sad is that, that it's a, a skill to, to make it home. And it is irresponsible if other parents, um, but, you know, specifically right now, white parents are those who are passing white, right? To be able to have a conversation to really say to your child, yes, the world is unfair. And uh, just because it's unfair, do we have to accept it? Because I think that that's the piece is that there is this sense of like, people have known that this is wrong. They know that it's not right, but yet not compelled enough to say anything about it and do anything about it. And I think that this moment is saying like the jig is up, you know, you can no longer just say like, oh, you know, I'm not going to say anything because it doesn't really impact me. Because to your point, you know, it's this conditioning and this socialization, you know, of this uh, racial hierarchy of sorts that says in our households, I get to have a conversation as a means of survival, but you can opt out of the conversation. And there's just, there can't be, no one can opt out anymore. I'm, I hear you 100% there. Um, and so, you know, we've seen some protests, you know, that are happening here in our city, peaceful, might I add. Um, and I think a very different narrative than what was being communicated in the media. And so I really want to make a point to say that organized protest, peaceful protest, and also people from all backgrounds and cultures and races. And so I think what struck me within it is it within the, the protest was that there were opportunities for families to take their children. I know that you had the opportunity to take your family and to protest with your son. So tell me what that experience was like. Well, you know, my mom always instilled in me the importance of speaking up and using my voice. She grew up in the segregated South under Jim Crow, you know, a time where I remember she used to tell me, like, a lady was to be seen and not heard. That's what she would always hear. And a black lady, <laughs> a black woman knew her place, you know, and my mom didn't want to subscribe to that life and she sure as hell didn't want me to she raised me to smash all of that and I've taken that same energy forward with my son activism is something that's really important to our family and we've taken my son out to demonstrations and protests since he was small enough to be carried on our shoulders um, participating in demonstrations is so powerful it gives a sense of community and like optimism and it really just feels good to scream. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes it's like the best release to be able to stand there with your sign and just scream and let it out. And it's really cathartic. This time though, it was different, mainly because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And we were being really careful and I wanted to be out there 
downtown LA, like just with everyone, but there was no way I couldn't compromise the, the health and safety of my family or my mom mm-hmm. who's living with us right now. And we finally figured out a way that we could organize in my neighborhood to go out and participate uh, in some protests. And last Sunday, I went out, um, got as many people from my neighborhood as I could to come out and get out on one of these busy intersections with some signs and with some hope and optimism. And we got out there together, my mom, my son, my husband, myself, and a lot of neighbors. And it was amazing. It was a really good feeling. It really helps me feel connected and hopeful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think um, when you say hopeful, I think, you know, after so many weeks, you know, of hearing about, you know, the stories of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, uh, Nina Pop, even the incident in Central Park with Christian Cooper, right? There was all these moments of uh, hopelessness, um, and then, you know, and then obviously the George Floyd video set off, I think, um, this uh, reckoning, as you mentioned. And I think to be able to be in those spaces of community gave a sense of hope that hadn't been there for quite a few weeks. And I just hope that the momentum you know, continues. I think that that's the piece that I'm cautiously optimistic because I know because we've been here before. We've been here before, and we know America. And you know, I don't want to Pollyanna this. You know that uh, I really am I'm cautiously optimistic because you know I I, I don't want this to be this trend um, that somehow. Um, you know, yes, we, we all get it. But then what happens when, you know, the rubber meets the road, when you have to have, you know, that difficult conversation or you have to, you know, s- step up to your employer, you know, to say, oh, the practices that, of how you're treating your employees isn't right and we should do something. And so that's the part that I'm that I'm interested in, in seeing. And for example, I was looking at an interview uh, with the CEO of Airbnb. And the question that the reporter was asking is is saying, you know, are you going to follow suit similar to Alex Ohanian, who uh, was is the co-founder of Reddit? And one of the bold moves that he did was he resigned his board seat and said, I want the board seat to be filled by a black person because that's a perspective that's not here. And I know that me, you know, step be taking a step back, that's leadership. And so, um, which I thought was a bold move and it sent waves through the tech industry. And um, the question was asked and you could see that the, <laughs> the Airbnb board member couldn't say yes that's what needs to be done and we're already in the works to do that I mean he he circumvented you know that question five different ways and so that is the piece of where I'm like cautiously optimistic because he was like well we do need to think about how we can increase you know what the composition of the board looks like and we do need to examine you know our processes around um how we select board members okay but that's not answering the question like we've moved into the space of you know what does it mean to be you know anti-racist versus non-racist and there's this question around you know how 
did you interrupt racism as an example? But I think the question that we need to be asking people is, what are you willing to lose as a result of racism? Or what are you willing to share? Especially in this capitalist country world that we're in, it's every every man for himself. Greed, 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 and get what you can. And that greed makes it so they can step on others and shut others out. And it's really like, it's not a pie. You know, they're mm-hmm. looking at everything as a pie. Like, I have to, if I have something, you can't have it. Like, we can create a world where people can have access, equal access to things. And right now... We're not. Yeah, I mean, I think that in order to achieve, you know, the idea of anti-racism as an example, it does mean a redistribution of power. So what are people willing to give up, right? What are they willing to lose? What are you willing to not have? What are you willing to share? And I think that that is the piece, that's the real work. And I don't, I, I, I wonder if, People are ready to think about what that means because it's hard to do that when your entire existence, right, has been set up where you haven't had to consider any of those questions. And now is this reckoning moment of sorts. to ask you you know there's a a lot of conversation that people are starting to finally kind of get to the space of beginning to understand you know what terms mean and language and so I wanted to spend some time uh, thinking about anti-blackness and that is a term that has for many you know in the last two weeks they've arrived to the party um, of understanding anti-blackness and so if you could share from your perspective um, what anti-blackness is and perhaps how you may have experienced it. Yeah, you know, I think going back to what you're saying just about terms and people coming into just an awareness that there there is language and there are terms. Um, and everyone, white people, black people, other people of color, there's a lot of learning that's happening right now. And I'm very grateful for the work that activists have been doing to create language to explain things but you know I think we're myself included I'm still coming to terms with what these things are to me and how I experience them the way I see it really is like I'm a black woman neither one of these things being black or woman are things that I can hide and they're what you see before I even get a chance to say or do anything and walking into white space, which is what I do very often, is hostile. You know, I'm required to prove myself constantly where others are just automatically offered the respect, you know, just by the hue of their skin. Hmm. And I mean, I can tell you stories about being the lead on an account and being treated like the intern. Mm. starting to run the meeting and having, you know, the the global execs ask me to go get them a coffee. Mm. (laughs) You know, asking me to take notes for the meeting and not respecting my position that I earned in that moment. Just the automatic dismissal. You know, and I think when it comes to anti-blackness, there's so much that's overt. 
mm-hmm. um, as well as covert that's happening. And for me, one of the most painful things about working in white space um, is that loneliness. You know, it's tiring <laughs> and it is, I mean, sometimes it's rewarding because you can like break through and you're working on transforming the space and trying to open the door for others. But in the meantime, it's lonely and you spend a lot of time and energy dedicated to making others feel comfortable and not offending them and not coming off like the angry black woman. And you just have to think so much before you can say or do anything. And that's a privilege. Um, sorry, white people have a privilege of never having to do that to the extent that I as a black woman has to do the fact that they think they don't see color and not even realizing that that is an insult and the anti-blackness is like the way that I encounter it a lot at work is in the professional environment it's just there's a lack of black people because we're not even thought about Mm. and you can ask people like on that last crew that you hire to film that segment or film that show or you know that film how many black people were on that you can ask this throughout the industry and people will start like counting on their fingers because it's not a lot if any Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's as if they're actively like they just hire people that look like them they do we all do what's comfortable to us and that doesn't make doesn't make things better it just makes things the same yeah i mean i think about it uh yes i think about it from the perspective of when you talked about the calculation of having to be so calculated you know with words and uh actions and how so many things you know the cumulative effect of so many things that have happened you know, in a day, as an example, right, of anti-blackness that has been experienced and racism. Um, And you don't even have time to even address what happens in a given day because um, you know in your response you have to be so calculated. And so I think this is an experience of all black people of, of, I gotta let that one go. I gotta let that one go. I've gotta let that one go oh, I really have to say something at this one. And so I think that that's a, an experience that what that does to the psyche, you know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, there's this idea of, you know, intergenerational trauma. And I feel that we carry that, right? Carrying the trauma of our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our ancestors, and then carrying our own trauma that we experience, um, you know, in our daily lives and what that does to, to our spirit and our bodies. And you, you see, you know, in our community that our, you know, life expectancy is not, uh, the, the same, you know, for our white counterparts. I think about black women and, you know, um, just the the rate of, of death, you know, or the most, in many cases, aggressive forms of cancer that, and I'm like, it's the environment, you know, when you think about those things, like we have to really look at the racialized trauma and its impact on our health and well-being, because that is real. And I, and I think about all of the times where we've 
been operating in spaces of whiteness and you know what it does and you know it's the idea it's like being black is beautiful it's wonderful it's being surrounded by uh, the suffocation of whiteness is what is exhausting that is what's exhausting not being black and so I I hear you on that Um, but I wanted to just bring that up with this idea of anti-blackness because that is a real thing and also I think in um, historically when we're going to look at the the foundation of our country and how it was built is that even non-black people of color contribute to anti-blackness it's always been about your proximity to whiteness being um, the thing that gives you your status or your elevation yes colorism is real yes and i think that we you know that doesn't get discussed enough and i think it's come up you know in the last couple of weeks of around solidarity and you know i know that you know other communities of color have been thinking about this and um this came up in a in a conversation i had you know with some um, asian american organizations that were really thinking about you know what does this mean and and their contributions to anti-blackness and really trying to interrupt and disrupt that and there are some folks who are really out there doing that but they to your point they talk a lot about the proximity right and the proximity to whiteness and how if you ascribe to this anti-blackness in word and deed it it grants you favor and I, I, you know, I really, this is an opportunity where we can talk about all of this or a lot of these conversations that we've known, right, in our respective spaces are now um, in the zeitgeist. And I'm, I want people to keep thinking and examining what this means in their life and how they can, you know, make changes that um, really dismantle this thing. I also think, like, you know, earlier we were talking about the work, the workplace, and like how does anti-blackness like come up? And um, I found myself in a conversation uh, the other day when people were talking about like, well, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Like, you know, we we hear there's a problem. Like, what do we do? And I was thinking to myself like, it's actually as easy as one, two, three. Like, you hire black people, you pay them what they're worth. And then you set them up for success. And when you think about those three things, like, they're doing it for other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not happening for black people. And I think a lot of black businesses out there, people want, they expect because it's a black business that it's going to be discounted rates. Mm. They pay you less. They offer you less. They lowball you. When it actually has taken you longer and more time and effort and energy and probably money to even get to the same place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that others are at, and then they don't want to pay you. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into a position, is oftentimes you're dealing with microaggressions and undermining tactics. And like I said before, it can be a hostile environment for many of us. I'm talking to so I've spoken with so many black professionals over the past two weeks and this experience is pervasive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Definitely, definitely. And, you know, I think to your point of the three steps, you know, and like, yeah, you know, the the ease of it and, you know, and and how, yeah, it doesn't take that much. And I think about the hiring piece and and this is, you know, where, you know, I want to challenge um, those who are in, you know, positions of power, um, you know, that can make decisions around hiring and, and what have you is to make the point that this isn't um, lessening criteria. Like these people are qualified, overqualified in many instances. And why is it that the immediate thought is, is that if somebody is hired, that somehow they are less qualified, right, to hold the position. And so I think when we think about really, you know, unpacking, you know, the pervasiveness of, you know, uh, white supremacy culture, right, and how it's embedded into the fabric um, in the ethos of America um, and across the world, right? Colonialism did all of us a number. Um, Thinking about, you know, why is that the immediate thought? Yeah, Um, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it it is a complex problem to solve because it has just never been addressed. And you're dealing with stuff that's just been compounded, compounded over years. And like I said earlier, like people are on the different spectrum of wokeness right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And people are going to make mistakes, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, We definitely need to balance intentions with impact here. But companies and people who are not willing to try because they're too scared that's a miss. <laughs> you got to try. And I love what you're saying because this is like what I feel like is the key of it, the whole thing is listening and elevating black stories and elevating the black experience. Yes. If you allow your black employees and the black people in your lives to share with you and you actually hear them because they probably tried to share before. <laughs> yes. But this time if you actually listen and you don't make this about you being the hero you make it about doing the right thing then chances are the moves that you make are going to be in the right direction even if you stumble on the road you'll be able to get back up quick and keep it moving because you're on the right road yeah and then recognizing that that road you know there's not necessarily a uh you know like i made it to the top you know it's (laughs) it's it's rather a uh, there's still a lot ahead of you, right? And um, you got to keep going even when it gets tiring or you feel exhausted because it will pale in comparison to the exhaustion of Black people in white spaces. Probably one of the last questions I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, today is marks the 53rd anniversary Uh, loving uh, versus the U.S. where in 1967 uh, the landmark uh, Supreme Court decision where uh, interracial marriage was no longer considered illegal so it was loving versus Virginia and so when you think about that just 53 years ago that's in someone's lifetime like there are people that are walking the earth right now a ton of 53 year olds (laughs) And I I think about that and, you know, you are in an interracial marriage. And so, you know, my first question is thinking about, wow, only 53 years ago did our country say that uh, interracial marriage was no longer illegal. Like that blows my mind. 
And I think especially when we think about everything that's going on right now, and not until 2000, believe it or not, uh, Alabama was the last state to um, go on record that it was no longer illegal. But that wasn't until the year 2000. And I bring that up because I think that that's important context of this moment that we're in right now. And uh, so I just wanted to ask you, what were your thoughts on that? And then thinking about what this conversation is right now and, and you and your marriage and relationship, did you feel like you had to push harder to, to navigate these conversations, you know, with your husband and, you know, family as an interracial family? Yeah, <laughs> like just <laughs> thinking about all of the race-based laws um, that have been slowly dismantling throughout, you know, history, a very short history. Um, yeah, to think that in 1967 it just became legal um, is crazy to me. But at the same time, you know, I look back as far back as I can go on my family tree, which actually isn't that far, but my grandmother's grandmother, I believe that's what it was, um, was a white woman married to a black man and uh, in the South, no less. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember hearing a story about how she had to go to the hospital for something and the hospitals are segregated, of course, and they had her in the white wing and uh, while she was there, someone had mentioned that she was actually married to a black man so they punished her by moving her to the black wing. Mm. of the hospital and uh, which presented her with inferior treatment um, as well and that's a story we've heard in our family for and many other stories but that story comes to mind right now um, just in the sense of like laws are laws the unjust laws should not be supported and they should be fought against and we all need to live our lives by a moral code and I think that is like in my blood and um, for all issues and love is love and I fell in love with a white boy <laughs> and we got married and we have a beautiful child and the person that I married is on the same side of the fight with me, supporting me holding me up and the conversations aren't actually difficult because I think a lot of times in interracial relationships, a lot of people want to project a set of problems that may or may not exist. And I think every relationship is unique on its own. There are some things that we have to deal with, you know, like sometimes we show up to the restaurant and people are like, are you guys together? <laughs> or when we get our check, uh, do you want these together or separate? Just dumb, dumb, dumb. But I think when it comes to this situation today and right now with my son, we're a living example that this racist world that we live in is a construct. It's not anything we have to subscribe to. And that together, we work together to dismantle what is wrong. And my husband has that fight. I have that fight. That's why we're together. And my child has that fight. It's in him. No, absolutely. And I think what you're speaking to is this idea of, you know, it's a partnership and 
um, he's on the same side of the fight with you. And so I think that that is the, the key part of that. It's not a fight that just, you know, black people shoulder or carry on their own. Right. And this is we can think about this, you know, outside of the context of a marriage, but that, you know, everybody's has to be invested in wanting to dismantle, you know, white supremacy, dismantle systemic racism and that's how we're going to get farther along we were you know where there's not one group that feels like they have the responsibility and it shouldn't be right um and so i think that you speak to that idea of that you know together right we're on, we're in the same fight and i think that if more people ascribe to that thinking that there's a responsibility to dismantle that's when we'll see the shift i think the big thing that like we are encountering as we continue with this movement is is trying to address these people who think that this is a black problem it's not a black problem (laughs) it's a human problem like we're all in this right now and we all need to work together to fix it black people have been trying (laughs) have been trying and People benefiting from this structure need to wake up and realize their humanity. And I really feel like this time right now, what we're going through, it's being called a reckoning. I think it's also an awakening. It's an awakening that we all are in a moment of choice. And the choices that we make right now are really important. They are what is going to make the world that we want it to be and I think we all need to be really asking ourselves like who do we want to be what kind of human do we want to be and are the decisions that we're making adding up to that human or is the decisions that we're making adding up to the world that we all want to share together and like really holding ourselves to that every day checking in because that's what this moment is offering us Last question is that um, you talked about, you know, Reiki and that you're a coach um, and so healing centered coaching. So can you just talk a little bit about that and how that intersects with the work of um, of racial justice? Yeah, you know, as a as a coach, you know, I just I really want to be there to support my clients um, to feel and be and live a life that's empowered. And I really believe that my clients have to be in control of their own narrative, of their own story, and not live the life that's defined by others. And those two things are very hard, especially for black women, to envision. Um, A lot of times we are spending, we are conditioned to serve others, and we are conditioned to make other people feel comfortable, and we're conditioned to set the table for others. And a lot of that is at our own expense. Our own imagination is sacrificed in those moments of just trying to put food on the table and just make it work. And I think with the clients that I'm seeing, Um, for for coaching services, it is really about helping them uncover and discover their power within them and then taking the steps forward to make a plan for that higher self to really be materialized and for them to step into that zone. 
That's powerful. That is powerful. And I think that that's self-care. You know, there's a lot of conversation around that. And I think the work that you're doing is really helping to um, empower um, and, again, elevate those voices and stories that have been, you know, silenced or have been erased. Um, and uh, that is seeing that work happen simultaneously um, with, you know, the movements that we're seeing to really want to dismantle racism that's also very much an important piece of the puzzle, right? And and seeing this thing uh, shift uh, for the future. So thank you for the work that you're doing and that you will continue to do. And as you said, it's in your blood, it's in your DNA. And, um, you know, I just, just keep fighting. And um, as I know you will, you know, we're all in this fight and, you know, in, in our own spheres of influence, doing it in different ways and meaningful ways. So um, I know that your, your clients and just so many are appreciative of the work that you're doing. So keep doing it, keep doing it. And thank you for being my guest today on the Relinda Speaks podcast. And let's be in conversation and let's keep talking. I'm so proud. Of, I also want to shout out this generation, Gen Z. Hey, what up, Gen Z? I want to shout them out because they have been showing up and showing out at these protests and just in what they are expressing uh, using their social media uh, pages and profiles, but they are showing up. And I spend a large amount of my time um, with Gen Z. I'm raising a daughter who is Gen Z, uh, but I spend a lot of time with this generation and um, I just wanted to shout them out. I'm proud of them. And parents who are raising Gen Z, Look, get proximate, get proximate to these young people. They'll, they can teach you a lot, but also you can show up for them. And they're, in many cases, these, these Gen Zers are having arguments with their parents to not be racist. Get proximate and don't project your limitations of what the world can be onto your children. These young people, some of them have figured it out the rest of us millennials I'm talking to us millennials Gen Xers baby boomers I'm talking to y'all let's move out of the way and let's support these young people